What's up, everybody? Welcome to your weekly installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. And it's I, Emmett, your Nuclear Barbarian. Today, I have another great guest. Of course, I only select the best. I've got Mr. Mark. How is it, Heineman or Hineman? I never asked. Heineman. Heineman. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. If you listen, if you listen to my LinkedIn profile, where you can like program program in how the how to pronounce oh, that's it. That's right. It's I, I say Heineman. Kind of like, are you high? <laughs> no, man. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. And so we got linked up because, I mean, we have some mutual friends. We both have nuclear aspirations. We believe in that tech. But I would say that you and I also have some alignments and that we understand the importance of the oil and gas world. But yours is an interesting story that I haven't, I don't think, fully encountered on the show before. So I'm wondering, like, what's your background? Sure. Well, I'll... I'll go on a bit of a monologue and give, give some background. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll start at the beginning because I don't get to tell the story very often. And it's, it's fun to tell a bar sometimes. But no, so I've, I've been focused on producing energy for America and the world kind of my entire life. And I, I was lucky enough to have that vision at a very young age. So I grew up in Colorado. I've lived in Colorado my entire life. And I remember being fascinated with space and science fiction and wanting to go and explore the universe as a kid um, and was also very outdoorsy, very active, had a great supportive family. And my dad would take us on Boy Scout trips all the time, right? Take us camping all the time. Dad's a big outdoorsman. And so I remember being nine years old and thinking about the problems of the world and wanting to go and explore the stars. And I was like, well, man, I could go and build spaceships, but like, we gotta have like a lot of energy to get to the stars, right? And miraculously, somehow at that young age, I identified like, well, that's like a core problem. We need like lots more energy to actually no way. Get, to that the, is wild. Get, get to the stars. That is a know? crazy deep realization to have at that age. <laughs> well, and, and it was really fun because like I was sitting around a campfire and I was like, what is energy? What is this like abstract idea that is foreign and people talk about all the time? But and like my so my parents were in oil and gas. And so I had some semblance of like oh well they're kind of an energy but that's also this dirty business and you know, <laughs> dad, dad comes in all the time right, and he's dirty right. and and he says he he writes with green pencils because the pencils because green's the color of money and the color of oil or some oils and it, you know so I, I grew up in that environment but i remember looking in the campfire right in the middle of the wilderness in the middle of summer and being like oh my god that's energy that like the flames and the fire that's that's it right and it's just this mystical light emitting that I mean at the time I didn't realize there was exothermic reaction from random gases floating around coming off and right. combusting with the oxygen creating emitting light and radiation that I could see in my eyes but to a nine-year-old you're like this is so cool but fast forward you know I was, I was fascinated with physics and you know you get into college and, and no one really knows what they want to do but I, I love physics and wanted to stay on this path of trying to figure out how to produce energy for American world so I ended up studying mechanical engineering at CU Boulder. I actually started University of Denver in, in Colorado to transfer my sophomore year. And, and the burning of bachelor's and master's there with focus on energy and the environment. And in my second summer before graduating, got an internship with a company called Enterplus. And they coaxed me into with their marketing and branding because they branded it as the energy of Enterplus, right? I didn't, I didn't know when I applied that they were an oil and gas company, which is pretty hilarious. And I, I wanted nothing to do with oil and gas. So my, my dad was in oil and gas. He, he 
I remember the last day of third grade, he, he ran a small oil and gas company in Northwest Colorado in the town that I grew up was called Range Lake. That's the town. And dad got in the car on our last day of third, my last day of third grade, my brother's last day of fifth grade. And he's like, well, boys, I got fired today. It's going to be okay. Whoa. We're going to go out and start our own business uh, and it's going to be great. And it, it turned out to, to be awesome. You know, it was pretty stressful, but at times when the price of natural gas would drop because my parents literally went out, borrowed money from the bank uh, and ran their own ma and pa natural gas company. So mm-hmm. as entrepreneurs, they had uh, about 30 plus wells that produced enough gas to support their family, be huge supporters of our church, our town growing up. And it, it was really helpful and kind of formative to grow up in an entrepreneurial family and watch you know, your, your parents create something. Uh, just to interject, I completely agree. I watched my mom start her own business out of her basement. And then that became the thing that, you know, my father worked too, but watching that turn into this bigger thing that ends up providing for your whole life, you really appreciate the type of elbow grease that that takes. You really respect that like risk tolerance and that 100%. kind of dedication. I totally agree with you. Uh, absolutely. So, so I grew up, and my, my dad always said, you know, boys, if you work for me in the summer when you're in middle school and high school, then I'll, I'll be your college scholarship fund, which at the time, you know, when I was doing tubing installs and working as a roustabout and doing manual labor and a pumper on natural gas wells, <laughs> it was like, this is a garbage job and I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it formed work ethic, which was really helpful for studying hard and, and being successful in school such that, you know, w- when I got into college, I knew I didn't want to be in oil and gas, like, because of, to me, oil and gas was uh, hard manual labor. It was very, it was a very difficult job, very dirty job. Additionally, I, I worked during the summer. My first summer job was working on the railroad. It took coal from the local mine to the power plant. And then the following summer, I actually worked underground in the mine as manual laborer. And I got to wow. say, nothing makes you better at multivariate calculus than shoveling coal back onto a belt line after there's been a collapsed wall and it's actually driven coal under the belt line so they can't get machines in there and you got to go and bust it apart manually and throw it onto the belt to, to remediate it. So, wow. Yeah. So did that. And like I said, found this internship job that was Enterplus. And it, I, I got the job partially because in my interview, I was like, well, I worked in a coal mine. And they're like, that's cool. This kid can work hard. Great. Which was, which was fun. But we, so I, I didn't realize that working as an engineer in oil and gas is actually much sexier than working as a manual laborer. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure that's true, but I, I want to know why. Why is that the case? Aside from uh, the fact that you don't have to do all the brutal stuff that you just listed, what yeah. is it about the engineering side that's so sexy? <laughs> well, it's it's mostly the not having it's. I, I love working out. I'm very fit, but I like working out on my own time and not having to make earn a living with my body. Right now, right, right, right. Work out for fun is the big piece. So mm-hmm. make money with my mind. But and that's not for everyone. Some people love working out, working with their body, working with their hands. So, but also the the joy that I find in engineering is really having the ability to take an idea from conception to reality, mm. which is like a very empowering mindset to be mm. the world, to recognize that almost anything that we can imagine now, we can create. And you know, I, that's what I learned from engineering school and that's what I've seen over the course of my entire career. So, so I got that internship at Enterplus and then 
was went back to school, was a senior, decided to stay for an extra year for my master's program, partly because I wanted another internship. And so I got an internship at Encana Oil and Gas, which is an oil and gas company in Denver. Mm. My, that senior year, I took a class called Sustainable Energy that I actually ended up TAing for also as a master's student that really outlined kind of all the different en- energy technologies, wind, solar, coal, nuclear, mm. oil and gas. And I remember sitting in class one day and seeing right, a table of energy densities. Of, mm-hmm. of fuel sources and energy densities. And right at the top of the list, there, you know, it was uranium, hydrogen, methane, other liquid fuels, and you know, and then kind of everything else, all the renewable stuff. Yeah. I was like, cool. Well, I want to be at the top of that list. Like I've got this internship with an oil and gas company. That works. I'm close enough. We'll we'll talk later about how I look back on that choice to go into oil and gas. I'm, I'm very happy I, I did and I have, but also feel a little naive even as a senior in college for even like, why didn't I just go to the top of the list? That was kind of silly. <laughs> so anyway, I, I got internship in Canada, which was kind of their grooming program to get into a full-time job, which if there's anyone, any college students listening, highly recommend that. You got to do that. Meaning go get an internship at a company for to, as a way to get in full-time as a new grad. Worked out great. Got a job as, in Canada as a new grad. And then six months in, was bitten with the reality of what volatile commodities industry really is mm. uh, when I was laid off six months in Wow! Uh, with 15 of the 16 other other new grads. So that was a very come to Jesus moment for myself, right? Like mm-hmm. I'd, it was it was kind of the biggest, like, this is totally out of your control failure point of my life to that point. It was like the Victorian, great grades in school, yeah. you know, got this great job, making more money than all my friends that have been going to oil and gas. And then suddenly like, you're without a job and you're an engineer with six months experience. No one will hire you. Yeah. <laughs> How toxic are you? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, so that was a very, very humbling process. But I look back on it and I'm like, thank God that happened because the rest mm-hmm. of my career has been shaped by that experience and the process of having to kind of recreate yourself from challenge and or from being challenged. Yeah. So how did you recreate yourself? What happened next for you? So one of my friends that I interned with also got laid off. He had met a VP at another oil and gas company when that VP had come and given a presentation at the University of Wyoming like two years previously. And out of blue, he emails the VP and is like, hey, I got laid off. You guys got any jobs? the guy had some jobs about an hour away in a neighboring town in the DJ basin. It was in what was called Anadarko's safety prep program, where they're plugging and abandoning hundreds of wells a year because they're going, they're old historic vertical wells and they're going and drilling horizontal wells through all the vertical wells. And when they frack the horizontal wells, they don't want to have geysers going up in every neighborhood. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the I can see how so that would be bad. So yeah. they had an entire department that their entire job was to like go through and just knock out all of these wells and, and plug them. And so my, my buddy got this job and his boss was like, hey, we're busier than hell. What, what can we do? And he was like, well, I know some other good engineers. Do you know more people? And they're like, absolutely. And so my name ended up at the top of that list. I did that job for about four months, but it was really a cog in the machine, not learning a bunch. Understood early in your career, I had a high priority of wanting to develop a broad skill set, get as much exposure to as many different attributes of engineering and kind of the oil and gas industry. And so I ended up emailing my old boss from Enterplus. And I remember my my first internship at Enterplus, he sat me down um, and he told me, he's like, Mark. I'm not going to hire you. You need to go out and work for someone else. Come back in five years. 
and then I'll hire you then. So I gave him a call back like two years after I worked for him. And I was like, hey boss, I don't like, I'm not going anywhere in this current job. Like, is there anything else that you've got for me? Mm. He's like, this is earlier than I was expecting, but yes, I need to hire you again. So he hires me again at the company that he was working at, which was Sundance Energy. And it was a, it was a small oil and gas company that had assets in North Dakota, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Texas. So I, I got exposure to those different assets, the, those different plays, and was able to kind of rotate and work at a bunch of different engineering positions and disciplines at that kind of small, the moderate independent oil and gas company, independent sized oil and gas company. And I phrase it that way because that was exposure to kind of the front lines of the shale revolution. You know, mm. so I, I graduated high school in 2008, graduated college in 2013, was working in the Bakken in North Dakota as an internship in 2011. 2012 was DJ based in summer, 2013 started in Wyoming and then Sundance kind of rotated through Oklahoma and South Texas. Did work, worked for Sundance for about five years, drilling wells, building pipelines, building facilities, doing all sorts of stuff, working production, producing wells, but like literally front, front line seat to watching how the evolution of these horizontal wells and this technology advanced, which was fascinating. By the end of 2017, I felt like I had outgrown uh, Sundance and thought mm-hmm. that it was time to, to make the next step. Like I wasn't going to learn anything else. And if I stayed kind of in that job and position, then I was going to do the same one year of experience, uh, 10 to 20 more times, right? So my pre- the guy that had hired me had ended up leaving and starting his own private equity company. I called him back again. And it was like, hey, boss, I've outgrown this. You got anything else for me? <laughs> so he, he ends up hiring me again, which is fantastic. Like, keep the champions of your career close and dear to your heart. So, you know, started it large in Canada, you know, smaller size company, and then even smaller size company. So that we were a team of four to eight people that went out and built up a position in the Permian Basin then in New Mexico of about 10,000 acres. And I compare it to like uh, a real estate play where you go in and into kind of a crappy neighborhood and you buy the first house and you fix it up. But then, mm-hmm. you know, when you prove that it's great to live there, then everyone else comes up and buys the property around you and increases your property values. And then you sell your house. That's what we did with the assets in New Mexico. We went in, we drilled three kind of exploratory wells, uh, sold the sold the acreage that we had mm-hmm. in three different, three, three different tiers and made about 5X the private equities money investment mm-hmm. in like, three and a half years. I came in on your kind of two and a half to three and a half um, when they needed someone to do ops, right? Mm -hmm. So we had a small team and we were drilling these wells. They needed someone to really focus on completing the wells and getting them online. So I took over that responsibility. And then once they were online, it was kind of like hang out and sell the company. So by October that year, October, 2018, we'd end up selling to Franklin Mountain Energy, which is my current, with the thesis that we could go in and drill about 70, existing oil and gas wells or 70 more oil and gas wells in the area and really turn an initial 400 800 million dollar investment into one to two billion dollars over five to ten years which is phenomenal right it's like a it's an awesome business and it's it's it you know it helps that the rock is really good but we also have rock star rock star team that we put together Mm -hmm. um but that, that's a bunch of background and a bunch about me and a bunch of oil and gas, but this isn't an oil and gas podcast. No, but so. I, I love that. That's sort of that's sort of the perfect tee up though, because first of all, I, I love learning about all energy systems. So learning 
more about your biography and also a little bit more how ONG world works is was really cool. So then you talked about how you you looked back at that moment when you were a senior in college and you were like, huh, why why did I go for the uranium? Like why why didn't you end up there? So when did you have that thought when you were like, oh, why didn't I pick that? Like, because that sounds like it's sort of a turning point for you. Well, if if it isn't obvious, I uh, I get bored easily. <laughs> like, I need I need lots of different projects to stimulate mm -hmm. me, and I I mean it's evident in like my personal and social life also, where you know I play a bunch of instruments and I do all sorts of sports and I travel the world, mm -hmm. love lots of different beers. Right, I'm not just a Miller Lite or Coors Light drinker. Right, so, right. You know, you know, part part of it was convenience too for oil and gas. You know, I, I wanted to live in Colorado and wanted to, because like I said earlier, out, outdoorsy and access to the industry existed, right? Meaning I could get a job in oil and gas, mm -hmm. which matters when you're young, right? But there, there was a turning point and it's really like, you know, flying back and forth to the field. When you look out the window and you see large swaths of land taken up with solar panels, and windmills and then you've mentioned this i think on this podcast and elsewhere in uh yeah the, the ether about how impressive the permian basin is in midland and yeah that was basically fly, a religious experience for you i talk about it all the time <laughs> yeah and and i a hundred percent agree like until you get there like until you go you don't can't really comprehend it and this is coming from like a small town rural kid that grew up in the middle of nowhere Colorado, where there was just an oil field in the coal mine. And, you know, when, when you go, you really see how much industrial equipment there is. But included in that is major scarring of the land and land use that it's is, I, I mean, frankly, un, unsustainable, right? I mean, I mentioned taking sustainable energy. And don't get me wrong, we have been excellent at getting more oil and gas out of the ground. And we get it from everywhere, including underneath the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it does tremendous good for humanity, like mm -hmm. infinite good for humanity, but it's very repetitive. You know, like you, you go out, you drill well, and you open it up and turn it online and like it produces a bunch of fluids from day one. Mm -hmm. And then every day after that, it produces fewer fluids. Mm -hmm. And because of that, like the intrinsic shape, and when I say shape, I mean shape of the curve of revenue and production in the industry. Right. Right. The first day that you turn on the well, it's going to produce the most oil and gas that it'll produce for its entire life. And then every day after that, it produces less. So you have to continuously be drilling more wells to be replacing production, which generates a lot of repetition in the industry, which does a few things. Number one, it's, it can become incredibly boring if you're just doing the same thing over and over. But number two, it really helps with innovation and getting better at stuff. And we can we can dive into that a little bit. But so I was I was kind of bored with, or I've, I've frequently become bored with just looking at the same well boards over and over again, thinking about the same project over and over again and saying like, there's gotta be a better way for us to do this whole energy project thing than just put holes in the ground. Mm -hmm. and scarring scarring the earth and, and so that made me critically reconsider and say like well once we knock it out of the park with this project with frank mountain energy like 
I mean, mm-hmm. it could be easy to pivot and go and start another oil company or start a service company or do something else. But it'd also be fun to explore nuclear and try and totally. try and get into that space and say totally. like, what what will actually do the most good for the most humans? And the more that I've dug into it, so I, I have been on a, a project to really educate myself and familiarize myself with the state of the nuclear industry. And I got a shout out to Brett Kugelmass and his podcast, Science of Nuclear, and all of the work that Energy Impact Center does, because mm-hmm. uh, I've now finally worked through over a year and a half, all of their episodes in the Titans podcast wow. series. It, it's like Crash Course 101 on because I so I also volunteer with Young Professionals in Energy, which is a nonprofit group throughout the country. It's kind of a way to gain exposure to people outside of just the oil and gas industry and get exposure to the wind folks, the solar folks, the utilities, et cetera. And so we, we have our own podcast and I've used that to interview experts also and be able to talk to the people that I want mm-hmm. to talk to, which I think is a tremendous tool. And I recommend that more people utilize it. Super valuable. But I was like, I had a thought and I was like, well, shoot, I should just go out and do this project for nuclear. And that'll be like my job for like two or three years, you know, like after we wrap up this oil and gas project, you know, like, and then like I found Titans of Nuclear and I was like, well, it's already been done. I, <laughs> I can check that out for this. Like I don't need to do that. Like, yeah. <laughs> so super thankful for Brad. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I kind of had this realization that like energy dense fuels and fuel, you get more bang for your buck, you know, have a higher return on energy return for energy invested return on investment is is just super valuable and i mm-hmm. i think there's more potential by exploiting those fuels than continuing to exploit lower energy density yeah i mean i think you know robert bryce has a great talk on this i don't know if you've seen it he's got like this 10 15 he does on on energy density and how it's like the thing everybody needs to understand because once you start seeing the world that way, it changes everything. I remember like Michael Schellenberger being like, okay, here's like, here's a log. And then like, here's like, you know, however much, however many grams of uranium or whatever. And he was yeah. like, this is like X times this log. And I was just like, like that's crazy you know and then you start to think about scale and how many things in your life are touched by energy and electricity and how many things human beings need to live dignified lives you know where they're relatively free and prosperous and it seems like a no-brainer you know, and I think that that's what's so troubling to many of us who are involved in nuclear now. But that also means that there's great opportunity. There's so much opportunity. It's crazy. My, my favorite example that I've seen in action mm. was d- during during COVID. We were staying up in Winter Park for a ski, mm-hmm. ski weekend. And, you know, they had outdoor seating only and they had a, an igloo right? that like you're, you could sit in with your friends. And they had a big solar array on the outside of it that was i think meant to power just a set of lights yeah which sorry are you there you yeah yeah no i'm here oh yeah oh, yeah okay sorry sorry so so there's a yeah there was a solar array that i think was meant to power just a set of lights and then they had a propane tank outside that also oh, that was keeping the whole hot warm it's <laughs> 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 like okay uh, what what great contrast between these two technologies? Yeah. 
Man, I mean, well, that's the truth, right? That's like the grid in miniature right now, you know, right? Is that people want to build out a ton of solar and then, you know, we need fossil fuels to be there to back it up most of the time because they just can't perform. So let me ask you this. Yeah. Like you I seem to have a whole like thesis about the transition from fossil fuels to nuclear what what is it like what do you see what are you seeing what do you think is the way through for us sure so my desire is to transition to use and develop and deploy nuclear generation technology or really exploit and develop as many technologies as we can that use energy dense fuels and Mm -hmm. there's no commonly available fuel that is more energy dense than uranium or nuclear fuels. And and as I've learned more about the industry, I I feel like I've become more educated about what it'll take to do that. I'm currently biased strongly towards SMRs and micro reactors because of some of the intrinsic advantages that they have over large scale, predominantly in the financing space and in the ability to innovate and get more reps continuously. Mm. So when when I look at the example and examples that I saw from the shale revolution, you know, there's a big shift in, wow, we went horizontal and then started fracking wells sideways. Um, Which sounds simple, but I witnessed thousands of technologies get developed to do that. Yeah. And, And it wasn't just in the subsurface, there were also technologies on the surface, from the pumping equipment, the software pieces that came with it, Mm-hmm. the emissions capture equipment that's been developed from the ESG movement. And so I've, I've had really, you know, like I said, frontline seat to the shale revolution thing that has demonstrated how innovation works. Mm-hmm. And it take, and, and it's not this like breathtaking, huge new technology thing that comes out of thin air, you know, something develops in the lab for 50 years or 20 years. And then, right, and then there's this eureka moment and everybody goes yeah, and does it. And then suddenly yeah. like the world is saved. That is not <laughs> it at all. That, yeah. that, it is the opposite of that. Meaning like yeah. the more samples you can get and the more shots on goal and the more things that you can develop and try, the better solution you will, you will have. And in the oil and gas industry, we've done that thousands of times. Right, we're, right now we're fracking a thousand wells in the US-ish, which means you know, tens of thousands over the past decade that we've done. And every single one of those has new plug technologies, new drill technologies, new casing technologies that are just phenomenal. And so when I draw those parallels to the nuclear industry, like the large scale reactors are too big and there's too few of them to build and to build cheaply. And, mm-hmm. and part of the ability to do something well at an industry scale is having done it before. You know, you think about mm-hmm. what we've done with Franklin Mountain Energy, and we've got a team of about 20 people that just this year we're deploying over half a billion dollars, Wow, which is wow. crazy. How can we do that and be successful? We are full of a team of people that have done it before, that mm-hmm. have worked in heavy industry, have worked and done these kinds of projects before. It's economies um, of repetition. It's institutional knowledge. It's engineering right. discipline. 100%. Yeah, And so when people, when people say nuclear is too expensive, and when they point to Vogel, mm-hmm. that that's like a mute argument to me mm-hmm. because Vogel, right? I mean, people talk about Westinghouse not having any of the institutional knowledge that was yeah. there when all of the previous plants were built. 
And so when they came in as low bidder and then subsequently went bankrupt, like nobody should have been surprised, right? Yeah. Now, like almost the best thing possible for the world from that project is like, take that entire team and someone else place an order with that same team. And while Mm -hmm. it's hard, it's like, I guarantee the next time they do it, it'll be cheaper. Yeah, well, especially... I mean, I think that I, I totally agree with you on this. Like, I, I think I'm a little squishy on the SMR question only because I don't know enough. Like, I'm not an engineer. So it's hard as a total layperson, you know what I mean, to totally yeah. size it up. And especially somebody who hasn't worked anywhere near like heavy industry. But I totally resonate with the idea of reps. And the idea that what we want to do is exploit economies of repetition to get this through. So if I'm hearing right. you correctly... One of the reasons why SMRs are appealing to you is that like what you've seen out in the various basins is that because it's smaller, it will allow us to iterate it more and more rather than learn how to do one big design over a really long period of time and then speed up as we get better at it. So there are more opportunities there for us to do that type of iteration. Um, yeah. that you've seen. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's, there's almost like a no size is too small approach because mm-hmm. once you have technology that works, like the, the benefit of this fuel source is that it's, it's virtually infinite. I'll, I'll give a few numbers to, yeah, so, let's do it. so, so one example that I love to give is when we frack wealth in the Delaware basin, that's part of the, that's a subset of the Permian basin. We burn over 150,000 gallons of diesel per well that we frack, which is huge, right? And the energy, the power demand during frack is over 20 megawatts. Wow. And and it takes seven days, right? So think about that. (laughs) You You need 20 megawatts to go anywhere in the world for seven days. And that's why we use diesel. And we've we've started using the industry's move towards trying to use natural gas because the, there's a lot of arbitrage between the price of diesel and the price of natural gas. Gaseous fuels are cheaper, including, but right now it's either being trucked in through compressed natural gas or liquefied. But anyway, yeah, yeah. a better a better solution would be having a shipping container that's 10 megawatts or two or two shipping containers that are 10 megawatts that you take out, follows the frack fleet doesn't need refueling for 20 years mm-hmm. right like that's my vision of like if you could develop a micro and, reactor and that would be a small reactor that would do that yeah yeah see yeah. that's what i love about this like i i have yet to hear anyone other than you say we could use nuclear to frack better and i love that dude dude i love that like 100%. that's so cool to me well and and it's like i mean it's we're using a ton of power for, with mm-hmm. diesel Everywhere, you know, if you normalize the cost of that diesel back to an energy basis, right? Everyone, everyone recognizes dollars per megawatt hour, dollars or cents per kilowatt hour. It's like twenty cents a kilowatt hour, plus, yeah. you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of arbitrage, you know. And people say, well, micro reactors are going to be more expensive. It's like, well, all you got to do is be the diesel generator. Well, and the other thing, well, it's sort of yeah, it's sort of like with nuclear reactors, right? Like you just need to be cheaper than coal. You know, right. like that's the that's the big thing. And I think right now when we're looking at global energy rations for coal, 
you know, or if not for coal, for diesel right now, they're in Europe, they're, you know, the UK truck drivers are like, I don't know, man, I don't think I can drive today. Sorry. You know, yeah. I think that that is going to make us, uh, a lot of people will take a second look at certain elements of their balance sheets yeah. in terms of what they think is cheap and what they think is expensive. So I'm uh, totally aligned with you on that. Let me ask you this. This is my major question I have for everybody. I don't know the answer to it. My major question for everybody that's like, wants to build new nuclear at all, old, big, small, whatever. What are you gonna do about the NRC? Like, what what do we do with Uh, regulatory regime? Like, right, because you like, ONG has, has figured out how to make it work. Now that doesn't mean it's a perfect world and everything goes the way everybody wants, but like, there are crews working in the Permian right now. You know what I mean? So what are, are there lessons that the nuclear world could take from ONG? I'm sure there are. Just, I wanna hear your general thoughts on this. I've got, I've got lots to say. I'll try not to be too crass because that's rude. So I, I really appreciate Kugelmass's rhetoric around, guys, the, the regulations are too strict and we need to like take, take the foot off the brake pedal a little bit. Let, let people just go with this. Nick Towerin has a great counter argument to that and is like, well, the safety systems exist in nuclear power plants now because like they're identified to help and you shouldn't just remove them. Uh, a great example that he gives is the it, sprinkler systems are installed in uh, apartment buildings because if there's a fire, then you have the fire to go out and you're not gonna skip on costs for that safety system because you, want it to be cheaper like you're still going to install a sprinkler system mm-hmm. similarly like in oil and gas we have containment and we in in many of our production facilities will lay down a fifty thousand dollar liquid containment that's like you know these steel plates with rhino liners sprayed so that if oil or water leaks then it's captured and it doesn't contaminate the groundwater mm-hmm. um or the ground or the soil so but from what I can tell as an outsider from the nuclear industry and from some of the regulations that I've read, it, it feels like it has gone way too far. And yeah, it is is tailor-made to a design and to projects that don't foster a culture of innovation. No, you know, and like, it's di- and it becomes difficult to foster a culture of repetition as well. So it's sort of like right, worst right. of both worlds. I'll say, yeah, when my dad talks about getting a drilling permit in Colorado in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it was one sheet of paper, uh, one <laughs> one page form to go out and drill an oil and gas well. You, you submitted it to the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, wow. and they were like, "Neat, looks like you got a good plan, bro." <laughs> <laughs> Happy um, hunting, yeah. <laughs> almost all of Franklin Mountain's oil and gas wells are on federal lands, which was problematic with the Biden campaign. But we'll keep politics mm-hmm. up for this for now. Um, yeah. uh, each of those permits is like over 200 pages at least with environmental assessments that are similar to what need to be done in the nuclear industry and designs for how we're going to construct well bores with specifics around pipe sizes, cement designs, you know, containment zones for if poisonous gases are released and what our plan is for those. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of regulations that go in, into it too, but they're regulated by the Department of Interior. And I'd say the industry has done a relatively good job of being involved in a proactive and productive way, meaning let's let's work with the regulator to be pragmatic about what the solutions should be and what the regulations should be. The larger the government, the more regulations there are. So the feds have the largest 
permit. And then, you know, the, the more cowboy states have kind of the smallest permit requirements. And, and that's, that's very telling to me. Right? It's more bureaucratic that you have an organization and the more people that are involved, like you just have more paperwork, which is a disaster for business. It can be very helpful for protecting the public, but sometimes it's not. Like there's attributes of oil and gas regulation that when I look at the rules, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Sure. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. And then when I talk to some of the regulators, sometimes it can become obvious that like as an engineer that's working in the industry and has direct exposure to some of the technologies that are being created and innovated mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. like there's different ways to do things that the regulator doesn't recognize. Yet. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, when you yeah. when you speak to people at the regulator, like they're completely ignorant of how these technologies work. Like we've had a lunch and learn with the Bureau of Land Management about some of the tools that we use to educate them on like how they function and convince them that like it's it's going to be great and work mm -hmm. work well and and they were thankful for it. You know, like so I I think a similar a pragmatic approach is necessary at the Fed level for the NRC. And I and I do think like a complete, I mean, notwithstanding, you know, chipping away at the rules or creating a different framework for smaller reactors, like a complete overhaul could be super helpful. I yeah. Mean, I mean, at this point, slate, yeah, you, know, you start with a blank board and say, okay, what, what can we take that's good about this process? And what can we take that needs improvement, which yeah. is going to take an act to Congress and could be very challenging. I think it would also do. take like an activist White House. I think some, some, yeah. some cabinet members within the White House would have to be very motivated to take that type of political risk because it's a risk, yeah. you know, but that doesn't mean it's one that's not worth taking, right? I mean, you and I, what's in the background of our entire conversation are ideas about prosperity, freedom, like environmental health and trade-offs. Yeah. And right now, the burden for working on any nuclear is discouraging. Yeah. And if we're starting with discouragement, then it's going to be really hard for anyone to do anything. Yeah. Well, I, I think about, and I think about this often like how do you create jobs how do you mm -hmm. make value for humans right like because mm -hmm. i i want to create jobs from for my peers right i want to like have projects that other engineers and construction people you know welders you know tradesmen regulatory specialists marketing folks financiers lawyers like can all go and do more with the technology that we create and if technology is expensive to create, then we can't make jobs for those people, mm -hmm. you know? And, and like the deployment of cheap electricity globally could be a tremendous value add for everyone involved. Yes. And, yes. and I think when viewed yes. like, so, and I think this is a fatal flaw of the nuclear industry often. Where they come at and they're like, man, if, if only like the rules weren't so stringent, like we could just like get shit done. Like, yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, no, like let's go get stuff done and have, have our focus be how do we create the maximum benefit and be opportunist in this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I, I think starting with the American regulator could be a toxic environment for that. I mean, the 
I'm very optimistic about Oklo's work and what they've done so far and, and where they're going and kind of the timeline of getting there. But I, I do question, is there a better developer area that you could go and demonstrate the deployment of a di of different reactor technology and then bring that back to the States, which you hate to see, you know, like this is America. This is supposed to be free for sure. us to go and like but, innovate but and develop the best stuff in the world. If, but but let's, sort of let's have that conversation a little bit. I just kind of want right. to unspool that and add some of my own ideas to sort of bolster your point, right? Obviously people know my work, right? I'm very America focused in terms of what are we going to do with nuclear? But, yeah. you know, in the piece I have coming out later, either next month or in early June, one of the things I point out is that like, while we sort out whatever we're sorting out with the NRC, which needs to happen, we should just be building overseas. There is no reason not to. It's a win-win yeah. situation because then let me put it this way. The greatest decarbonizer in America has been like Baca and, and Permian Basin, basically because it's forced out coal. We should be grateful for that. And we should be grateful for the energy sovereignty that it's been given to us. Yeah. There is a free rider problem with decarbonization plans in the developed West, which is that if we decarbonize, that doesn't necessarily mean that developing countries, they're working sure. their way up the energy ladder are going to do the same and they have a right to develop. So the way to get rid of that free rider problem and to help with that is to build nuclear with them because yeah, they don't I, I think have it's... the funds and the engineers to do it. And so a partnership seems like a good idea to me. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. And, and I, think the, I think it's three tiers for the developing world. Okay, and it's, tell me if, about it. If, uh, wave magic wand, fast forward 10 years, if you have a technology that is capable mm -hmm. of producing the cheapest electricity on the planet, mm -hmm. electricity that is so cheap that you can do literally anything, too cheap you to can, meter even. You can you can terraform the world, right? Mm -hmm. Which this fuel source has the promise to do that. Mm -hmm. It's it's incredible. And then you you pair with it two other profit centers, liquid fuels and clean water. Mm -hmm. Why why those two? Everyone needs clean water, critical to human health, life, safety. We have lots of water. People tell us we're running out of water. Don't believe them when they tell tell you that we're running out of groundwater and fresh water that is not priced correctly, in my opinion, and mm -hmm. is super accessible and available. If you just add cheap electricity, you have infinite water, right? The oceans mm -hmm. are pretty big. We're not going to run out. So just need desalination process. And in oil and gas, I see that happening all the time. We desalinate water, we clean water for, for completions and fracking sure. all the time. And I see new water filtration technologies being developed all the time. So I'm very, very optimistic about the water game, but add that as a profit center to pair with this other technology. Synthetic fuels or liquid fuel. Why that instead of hydrogen or electric vehicles or other EVs? Um, the easy answer is it's simpler. We we know how internal combustion engines work. Yeah, there's lots of moving parts, but it doesn't necessitate a ton of mining that is going to be necessary for also, the EV also, revolution. Also, they're lighter, which people think that's a troll, but that is really important if you're thinking <laughs> at scale, because if you make every single no, car yeah. on the road heavier, that's going to wear out the asphalt, which then requires more fossil fuel right. to right. not only create, but to implement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that I'm, I'm bullish on synthetic fuels also. I, th I think there's an argument for, well, I, I won't mention hydrogen because um, mm -hmm. it, it frustrates me but they, you, know, <laughs> you and me both <laughs> re 
replacing gasoline that's made out of crude oil with gasoline that's made out of literally air and water mm-hmm. from recombining CO2 and the hydrogen from water makes tremendous sense, right? We've invested hundreds of trillions of dollars into the modern liquid fuel transportation global industry. And yeah, there's with, with emissions, there's knocks and socks and some particular matter problems that exist. And I agree we can get better at filtering those. But if you're looking to rapidly bring people out of poverty all over the world, yeah. like handing them a propane bottle or an LNG tank that was made out of air and water from a cheap nuclear power plant takes, takes care of the entire, yeah. like, you know, Fossil right. problem and it's only it's only nuclear that can provide the amount of energy at a cheap enough exactly. rate to do that affordably. Yep. Like that, like the only 100%. world in which that makes sense is a nuclearized world. I completely agree with that. You know, that's why I like I'm not like upset when I see some of the projects about like, oh, we're gonna turn this region in green hydrogen space using this nuclear plant. I'm like, yeah, that's fine, but it would be cooler if we had more nuclear plants to do that with, don't you think? <laughs> Right. So step A, get, yeah. get the cheap electricity. Yeah, <laughs> step A. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Yeah. Um, no, so I think this has given me a lot to think about. I really, dude, I'm so taken by the um, idea of having smaller, the the idea of nuclear to help us frack better and cleaner is well, so, so surprising. That's, that's, that's not the only thing you would do, a, right? That's A utilization. That's A, because there's 20, tons. Me- 20 megawatts, right? Yeah, and that's, that's just one. There's a ton, right? Like that's the, I mean, I should add on that, but I only want to say that, that I'm, I'm charmed by that because I think it speaks to the reality where, where the energy transition is not going to be flipping a switch. Right. And I think the sooner we understand that, the more we can think of things like, you know, what we've just been discussing as part of what our future looks like. That is the wave of the energy transition cresting because it doesn't happen just all at once. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. How how do people find your work? I want everybody reading your work. I want everybody listening (laughs) to your podcast. How do do we amplify the signal? Yeah, our podcast is YPE podcast. So Young Professionals in Energy podcast, which is we, we have all sorts of guests on, I think we've got like almost 20 episodes released and it's growing rapidly and awesome. we've got more and more coming on. One of my favorites was Scott Tinker. He's head of the Switch Energy Alliance. If you don't know his work or any of your listeners don't know it, go check it out. Just super, it, it's impossible to tell about their politics because they intentionally keep it hidden. They just present kind of all of the different energy generation technologies and want people to like come to their own conclusions. But if you spend enough time on their site, then you're like, hey, you're going to get an issue. We should end up in nuclear. Yeah. I also have, so I mentioned the podcast project that I thought of that Titans of Nuclear had already replaced. And I was like, great, that's done. But I recognize that like, well, if I want to go out and help in the nuclear space and all that I have is no gas background experience and like, how do I demonstrate knowledge about the industry mm-hmm. and the space beyond just interviewing people myself. And so I started a blog that's called the uh, Fire Division that has a bunch of resources and essays that I'm adding to every day. So it's just fire, the number two, vision. And the whole thought process behind it is, right, I've worked in oil and gas my entire life, including growing up in my dad's business. And I, I view just a better solution for humanity. And so highlighting many of the existing problems and then mm-hmm 
proposing potential solutions and actionable things that people can do with each step moving forward. So I try and incorporate a little bit of, you know, act, call, call to action each post mm-hmm. also. So you can find me there. I'm also, I'm, I'm not hard to find and I generally pick up my phone. I get, I get a lot of phone calls from vendors. You can imagine there's, there's a lot of people <laughs> trying to solve me a lot of things, yeah, so, yeah. but I'm, I'm happy to talk to everyone. So LinkedIn, email, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook messenger, you can probably find me on teams. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 So a lot of that, everybody is going to be in the show notes as always check that out. But this was an absolute delight, man. I like, we're going to have to figure out a way to break bread. I, 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 I had a yeah, blast. Dude, come, come to Denver. Yeah, come dude. Fly, for real. Fly out here. Mark, Mark Nelson was just here. Last week so, we drank beer at Ryan House. It was great. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So everyone, thanks for tuning in. Check out Mark's work. And as ever, stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.